Gentlemen, start your podcasts. You're going to have to learn your cliches. You're going to have to study them. You're going to have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. Hello one and all, and thanks for seeking out edition number 116 of Scoring at the Movies, the every other Thursday chitty chat that reviews old sports films. You should know right off the hop here that we spoil. For instance, in a shocking twist, Kenny Rogers ends up loving these six kids at the end. I didn't see that coming. Nobody did. I am the child-averse middle-aged man who never drives fast enough to qualify for NASCAR races, Number 49, Ryan Ellis. And here's my partner. He's back. My bug in these talky escapades. The man who knows that love will turn him around. Turn him around. Chris Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. I'm slightly disappointed that you didn't refer to me as the gambler. But I get it. It's Everybody it. knows <laughs> the secret to race car driving. It's a good song, nonetheless. I don't blame you for that. And it's the weirdest thing driving over here. Got halfway here, and all the side panels of my car just fell straight <laughs> off. I don't understand what happened, but made it anyway. Anthony Michael. <laughs> and incidentally, I've been in the car with you when you've engaged sport mode. So that line you just said about not going fast enough to qualify for NASCAR is a flat-out lie. And we both know it. I got halfway fast enough. <laughs> and it was only, brief. Only if there's grannies on the highway in front of you. <laughs> I got somewhere to be. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast after a one-week, or I guess in our case, a four-week absence. Brief hiatus. Two-week, whatever. There's another spoiler in this movie, by the way, because the song playing the opening credits, that love will turn you around, turn you around. That song might be cheesy, but I watched Six Pack two weeks ago before we sat down to record tonight, and that song is still in my head, as I've proven here already. Hey, listen, I love that song. I love a lot of Kenny Rogers' songs, and... If there was one disappointment, oh well, no, hold on. Let me walk that back. I was going to say if there was one disappointment in this movie, there was a number of disappointments for me in this movie, but one of them was I, I wanted more Kenny music. You get Love Will Turn You Around at least twice, if not three times through the course of the, the movie. The very opening and the very ending, for sure. And I think when the car is being first rolled out at the Atlanta 500, it plays as well. But I thought for sure we'd get more of his catalog or at least get him in character singing in the movie. Mm-hmm. Which we don't. We get a random kid, number three, singing for some reason in a twist I didn't really understand as they go to Tennessee. But I wanted more Kenny songs, Ryan. More Kenny. I was like Kramer after Kenny Rogers Roaster has moved away from his apartment. I was just sitting on my couch going, Kenny, Kenny, licking my fingers, (laughs) greasy doorknobs all around. It was not good. You're obsessed with that chicken. I bet part of the reason why there are no Kenny songs in this movie, there are two reasons, actually. One might be that he said to the director, the producers, the studio, whatever, I don't want to sing if I'm going to actually act in this movie. Let me be an actor for about two hours. The other thing could be that his recording studio didn't want to give Fox the rights, 20th Century Fox, that made this movie. I think that's 100% it. I imagine even in the early 80s, the artists didn't really have control over their own catalogs most of the time. So yeah, it was probably whatever recording studio owned the rights to the various songs that said, no, no, you get one. We'll license you this one song. I don't even know. Was it an original that he wrote for I think it was. It was actually a country hit. It was even on some of the other charts, but it was a big hit on country radio. I remember the song. Uh, I don't remember it at all. I saw this movie when I was, I think, probably, let's see, I'm going to guess 84-ish when it was on tape. 
So I would have been probably 10. I have never seen it since. Well, I'd never seen this movie until we watched okay. it on the podcast. I just remember the song. Well, you were one when this came his, out. Yeah. <laughs> my parents are big Kenny Rogers fans too growing up. And I didn't really have the appreciation for him then, but I remember listening to those songs and this is one of them. I went into this thinking, well, this will be like a goofy, fun Kenny Rogers adventure. Although Allison did come home when I was halfway through watching it. And she said, is this a Kenny Loggins movie? I briefly passed out as I tried to process that comparison between <laughs> Kenny Loggins and Kenny Rogers. But yeah, I thought it'd be like goofy fun kind of thing. Wasn't quite as fun as I thought it was going to be, but it did exceed my admittedly meager expectations going into it. So I can see why you had nostalgia or whatever affection. Well, it's more curiosity because I don't okay, remember curious. it at all. <laughs> I knew that he was in it. We right, had six enough. kids that you had to know he was going to grow to like at some point. The song tells you that for sure. That's all I really knew about the film. And it was free on YouTube. The ultimate deciding factor. Free, baby. Always helps. Well, let me set it up. So Six Punks was released 40 years ago by 20th Century Fox on July 16th, 1982. It was released by Fox, but it's not available now on Disney+. Plus. It should be. It's weird. They still don't have The Hustler on there either. One of my favorite sports movies ever. I love that movie. The film wasn't a blockbuster, but it definitely didn't fail either. The Rotten Tomatoes critics, there is almost nothing to report about this. Well, sorry, there is something to report, but numbers-wise, there isn't. I looked again today because I had made a note. We were supposed to have covered this weeks ago, so my notes are old. And we'll say right now that if, especially me, because I took notes but didn't watch it again, you've seen clips again more recently at least. Mm -hmm. If things escape us, it's because we saw it so long ago and then we had to reschedule and do The Freshman. And by the way, that's one thing I'll say before I get into the Rotten Tomatoes reviews. This movie's congenial, and I think that's fair to say about The Freshman as well. Whether you actually like it or not or laugh at it or not, a likable character in a pretty likable film, and that's the same with this. Whether or not it's yeah. funny, that's debatable. So Rotten Tomatoes. Bruce McCabe of the Boston Globe is the only critic who's ever reviewed it. That was in 2018, so he really went back <laughs> in time. He waited all Why? those years, almost 40 years to do it. He gave it a fresh tomato, but that doesn't register on the site to give it a 100% rating. The tomato is just gray. I've never seen that before. <laughs> it's a petrified tomato? <laughs> just locked in time? Don't eat it. Don't throw it out. Just ignore it. <laughs> just put it on the mantle and forget it's there. It'll be fine. <laughs> but the audience is 71%, 7-1, and there are over a thousand ratings from the audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. That's a little surprising. Now, unlike a lot of the other movies we've talked about from, if not exactly this era, because I don't think we've done a lot of early, well, I mean, I shouldn't say that, we have done a lot of 80s movies, but anyway, we've done a lot of 70s movies in particular, later 70s movies, where we've looked at it and been like, we understand what the theoretical thrust of the movie was back then, but it doesn't speak to us anymore. Especially when it comes to laughter, we didn't laugh a lot Exactly. This movie, and I think this speaks a little bit to the changing tone of late 70s to early mid 80s movies, I understand what the movie was going for mostly, even if I don't always laugh at it, I get the humor and I get the congeniality, as you put it. I think that's a really apt way to describe this thing. By and large, I was able to have more fun watching this movie, even if I didn't feel like it was as rollicking a good time fun movie, because there's a lot of bummer moments in it. I got it more than I got a lot of those other older movies that we've talked about. And I think that's part of the reason why it's not a movie that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. I also understand why you don't remember anything about it from your childhood. <laughs> But I can understand why the audience would overwhelmingly say 70-odd percent anyway. Would it's a solid first tomato. It's a solid number. And I get why. Because if you're maybe somebody in our age bracket, mid to late 40s, and you have children in particular, and you're like, I want something from my youth that has some nostalgia. It's got Kenny Rogers. It's got Anthony Michael Hall as a kid. It's got young Diane Lane. 
all these sort of nostalgic callback moments. No offensive stuff at all. No language, no nudity. No perfect family movie. And it's also got that very quintessentially 80s love of the southern U.S. and driving cars, like Dukes of Hazard style stuff, right? right? The sheriff chewing on the matchstick all the time. I get wanting to sit down and watch this with your kids, especially. It's totally inoffensive and everybody can kind of enjoy it. Well, it was 40th at the 1982 U.S. box office. Rocky Three was 4th. We covered that before. We've covered almost I all the Rocky the movies. Fool. I do pity him so much. We've covered most of the Rocky movies. There are a few more we'll cover as the years go on. We'll do them all at some point. You know we will. Although Bev and I covered the first one for the Top 100 Project many years ago. Creed Three soon. Yeah, just saw the trailer for that a few days ago. And Personal Best was 93rd that year. That's something that might get covered on this channel before the end of the year. All right, you just said Diane Lane is one of the kids in this movie. She's the oldest, the yes. only girl of the bunch. Anthony Michael Hall is the mechanic and the know-it-all. Not really know-it-all, I guess, but he actually does know it all about cars for a kid especially. This was his first movie. She'd made plenty of movies at that point, but she was still only 17 years old. But here's the nutshell mm -hmm. for Six Pack. 17-year-old girl spends several weeks in a small camper with six males. <laughs> <laughs> accurate. Very accurate. One of whom is a grown man. And this is one of the reasons, amongst a few others, why I say this was not like a rollicking good time throughout for me. Because there's some moments, and maybe it's me as a 41-year-old guy now looking at it. That's weird now. Part of it was the Diane Lane with Kenny Rogers in the camper. That's a little bit creepy. Although, after watching this movie... I do desperately want a car whose interior is basically just covered in brown shag carpeting. Like, that was spectacular. Just up the sidewalls of the interior of the car. Mwah! But there's that scene later in the... Yeah, towards the back end of the movie when she's trying to, like, distract Turk. Yeah. Creepy as hell. And now, thankfully, nothing ever really happens. But even just watching that five-minute stretch of her quasi-seducing and distracting him was so creepy. If there was one element of this movie that I would maybe rejig a little bit... That would be it. You know why it's acceptable enough, at least, even then and certainly now, or more so then, I guess, is because we know what she's doing. There's no oh, yeah. mystery to why she's in there. She's just distracting them so they can mess with his car. Although he would have gone through with it if she actually wanted to. It wasn't just playing him. So then Brewster can win a race against him. They're performance-enhancing kids. It's like they're giving their guy drugs. An advantage, an unfair advantage. <laughs> they're peckers? Performance-enhancing kids? <laughs> You're right. That does reduce the creep factor of it, knowing that. But the knowledge that Turk as a character was willing to go through with this, he knows as a character how young she is. I don't know. There's just something really squeamish about it. You know who plays him, by the way? Turk? Terry Kaiser. So yeah. he's Bernie in Weekend of Bernie's. That's where I knew the face from. When he first shows up on the scene, I thought maybe it was Men in Black, Fugitive, uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, Rip Torn. Oh, Tommy Lee Jones, okay. I thought it was a young Tommy Lee Jones at first when Turk okay. first came on the scene because he's wearing that cowboy hat and the shades and the voice. And then I saw the face. Okay, it's not him, but where do I know you from? Weekend at Bernie's. He was also in Side Out, which is, of course, a volleyball movie in 1990. And he did a surfing film in the early 80s. So he did plenty of oh, sports really? movies in that decade. And you just said Tommy Lee Jones, which, of course, makes me think of No Country for Old Men. Barry Corbin, who does play the cop, the sheriff, Big John, is the old man that Tommy Lee Jones goes to visit at the end of the film. I think it's supposed to be his uncle or something. Mm. He did a lot of TV, especially, including... So much TV. Better Call Saul. As he got older, he developed that shaved head look with the goatee and stuff, and he took on a different role type. But especially in this era, this guy, I remember, popping up in all kinds of TV shows all the time, and he was always the southerner, oftentimes a southern law enforcement sheriff type of character, but sometimes like the southern businessman or whatever. Mm. And he always had 
the matchstick or the toothpick hanging out of one lip. That was just like his thing for 20 or 30 years, I feel like. Mm. So as soon as he popped up early on, I was like, ah, yeah, we are solidly ensconced in the <laughs> 80s, baby. And in the South, you mentioned that before. It's set in Texas, the very beginning, of course, that yes. little bumble fart town. <laughs> <laughs> and then Louisiana and other towns around there, too. But it was shot in Georgia from January to March of 82 and then came out a few months later. They also shot a TV pilot with Don Johnson and Marky Post, who was in The Fall Guy. Also, what's it called? Night Court. Probably Night Court's the bigger credit than that. Johnson would have been pretty fun in that. And you know who actually, well, they wanted to play this character? Because Kenny does a solid job for a non-actor. Sure. But Burt Reynolds. And that makes sense. But one thing Burt Reynolds had always, but especially in this era, and it wasn't a lot of it, I wouldn't say. He wasn't a dangerous type person. But he had more of an edge. Yeah. It's the way it was written, I guess, and a non-actor is probably not going to challenge his director or the producers of the studio. But Kenny Rogers is fine. But my God, he's toothless in this movie. He never yeah. does anything wrong. <laughs> you know, he doesn't like them at first. That's pretty clear. But he's never vicious with them. No. He saves the little kid from drowning. Yeah. yeah. But that's also a dangerous chase. Breezy's the one that drives the van into the river. But it's only happening because of him. Now, he doesn't know it's kids at that point, but he could have killed them all. I really wish somebody had gone through the script and decided to fill in some of the small gaps in the story and a little bit more detail about where everyone's coming from in the mindset. Because we get Kenny's, or Brewster in this movie's, story as we go along in broad strokes. He had this crash two years ago. It freaked him out. He lost his sponsors. Turk took over his role. He ditched his girlfriend at the time. Lila. Lila. He's now reappearing two years later with a Winnebago that's towing a race car that he wants to get back into this lower circuit on it and start racing again. I like the notion of Burt Reynolds doing that a lot more because, A, you're right, he would have had some more grit, especially in those scenes where there's Kenny fighting because that happens a couple of times mm -hmm. too. Also for like the age appropriateness of it because Burt Reynolds would have been a little younger than Kenny Rogers at this point. And to think that Kenny Rogers' character in his mid-40s is now trying to make a racing comeback, stretched belief a little bit for me. Because even in racing, you can't be too old and really truly succeed, right? No, exactly. There is a physical fitness component to mm. it. He was 43, by the way, when they made this movie. Yeah, but then you're right. At the opening stage of this movie, when he stops into the gas station to use the John and his car is just immediately stripped in like the two minutes that he's in there. And then he engages later on, slightly later on, in this high-speed chase in his Winnebago still towing his derelict car behind, going off-road and stuff. You are really giving her here, whether or not it's kids. Don't you think there's more appropriate ways to try to resolve this? Well, he needs those parts back. It's like stealing somebody's horse in the Old West. You may yeah. have killed them by taking their horse. But he does have alternatives, and is it worth it if he dies or gets the other driver, at the time he might have thought it was just a driver, not a bunch yeah. of kids, killed? One of the things this movie does, which is a bit of a mistake in the script writing, this is a guy that's clearly up against it, down on his luck. He's got nothing and no one except this car. He's got to race in the next race, or he's screwed somehow. Pretty laid back, considering all that, though. Yeah, super laid back. The whole movie, he's laid back. <laughs> he's got one gear only, which is why it's ironic that the potheads later on offer him something. He's like, I never touched this stuff. Really? You look placidly stoned yeah. the whole movie. <laughs> You're naturally stoned. Yeah. No right. drugs to do that. Fair enough. But then later in the movie... We're envisioning this desperate guy. He never seems to have any money troubles at any point. Like he's booking hotel rooms for himself, for the kids, buying food. No issues. When he's going to Louisiana in subsequent races, he's meeting everybody. Everybody loves him. He goes to the junkyard. The junkyard owner loves him. If push came to shove, you could probably reach out and say, I need some parts for this race. I'll pay you back, I swear. I think it would have been a little bit more 
sensible for the flow of the movie if he was a little bit more of a pariah in the community. Not necessarily a bad dude, but he was a loner. He didn't have a lot of friends. He didn't have a lot of connections. And that's why it was so important he chased down the kids at the beginning and get his parts back. Right. Because he had no other options. But he did have options, as it turns out. As he it didn't, turned out, Maybe yeah. didn't know that. Turk was the only person that was ever against him. Exactly. And still is. Along those lines, too, later on in the movie, when he meets every woman that used to be in his life, they just immediately swoon and fall all over mm-hmm. him. Like, Lila... He just like shows up behind her in a bar after ditching her two years earlier, starts kissing her. And she's like, oh, you, you're such a scam. I'm in. You can spend the night with me, even though I haven't seen you in all these years. Yeah. Well, that's Erin Gray, who was in Buck Rogers. But I always think of her actually as being on Silver Spoons. I was a little young for that. I mean, I remember Ricky Schroeder and those cast of characters, but I never really watched it. No. Kenny Rogers himself, by the way, never starred in another movie. He did a lot of TV shows, and not always as Kenny Rogers. He actually acted as a character in plenty of TV shows, but never in a movie. And it doesn't even seem like he was in a smaller role, but definitely didn't have a starring role. And this movie did not fail, and they made a TV pilot out of it. Now, maybe he didn't want to do it. It might have been that. It might have been him saying, I'd rather record. I did the movie with the kids and had fun, but that's enough for me. That could be it, because it feels like also given this 80s era... If he wanted to do like a Disney movie of the week kind of thing, that Disney would have been down to give him a couple of movies where he could do his little thing, whatever the story might be. But you might be right. I'm more of a recording artist. I don't want this multi-week shooting schedule. It's not for me. The TV of the week thing, I didn't look. There maybe are some TV movies in his resume. Which, if they're an hour and 45 minutes, is effectively the same thing. But that's usually a smaller budget, which means a shorter shoot. Yes. And maybe more studio. This was a lot on location down south. It had to be, just by the nature of what they were shooting. There's very little interior set in this. There's a lot of, obviously, racetrack exteriors. There's a lot of in the Winnebago, mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of motel exteriors. In the Winnebago could have been in a studio. Could have been. Probably yeah. was. They always talk about cover sets for rain. I bet they saved those for those kinds of days. Mm-hmm. The director, by the way, Daniel Petrie, he won three Emmys in his career, but he's best known, I guess, beyond this movie, well, more so than this, I guess, for directing A Raisin in the Sun. In 1961, a race movie. Not a racing movie, but a movie about race in 1961. (laughs) Okay. And then here we go, 20-plus years later, he's doing this trifle of a film. Mike Marvin and Alex Matter wrote it. It was Marvin's debut. He only wrote six movies in total. And Matter, this was the last of his three screenplays, so no big names. And I didn't even write down the producers, the composer, any of those people, (laughs) because none of them really stood out as big names. Every once in a while, we'll cover a sports movie that might be a trifle or not very good. And I'll look and see, oh, the cinematographer's a legend. The composer is Jerry Goldsmith or somebody. But not in this case. Nothing about this movie particularly stood out, period. Obviously, if you're dealing with a Kenny Rogers movie, if you're talking about music and composers and stuff, you're hoping it's Kenny, and we've already talked about that. So it was Charles Fox. Beyond any music here that's Kenny Rogers music, I think as an audience member, you're just like, I've tuned out at this point probably anyway. The script I thought was okay. Again, my biggest gripe with it is that it felt like you could really benefit as an audience member if you understood a little bit more about, especially Brewster, but just the characters in general. It just felt like you're the orphan kids. We're all going to feel sorry for you because mom and dad were killed in a car accident. You're the lovable, down-on-his-luck single guy. Everybody loves you. Women love you. Men want to be you. You're the sort of greasy antagonist, and you're the corrupt southern sheriff, and go. So a little bit more. Now, granted, I know this is a kid's movie, so you're not going to get down and dirty into the dark skeletons in everyone's closet or anything but give me just a little bit more explanation about who they are so i can empathize with their situation a little bit better yeah it's fairly long though for a kids movie it's about an hour and 45 hour 47 minutes though but you're right there should be more layers i would say to what's going on the writers though one thing they do pretty well is some callbacks if you will because in the very beginning kenny rogers well brewster gets put in jail by the sheriff and the kids have to break him out 
And he never goes back there, even though he broke out of jail. And he was in there for a lot oh. of reasons. When the sheriff tracks him down, he never says, maybe he can't jurisdiction-wise. It's a different state. I don't know. But at the end, the kids are taken. Yeah. And then he breaks them out pretending to be a sheriff, which is also a crime. Yeah. Kenny did some stuff like running out of the restaurant without paying his bill because he saw the car thieves and stuff. Yeah. So a bunch of petty stuff. And then resisting arrest because he told off the sheriff and stuff. So he has criminal charges in Texas. And you're right. There's probably cross-state lines. There's no cross-jurisdictionality even within the U.S. or something. But then at the end of the movie, when the sheriff comes to Georgia and the Atlanta 500 to grab the kids and take them back to Texas, he says, I got whatever I needed from the Texas authorities. I got the extradition order from Georgia. So he went through all that trouble to get whatever paperwork he needed to cross state lines to get the kids. Why wouldn't he just do that with Kenny at the same time? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you could speak to the same judge, get the arrest warrant transferred to Georgia or whatever. And then Bob's your uncle. You don't have to worry about Kenny anymore because you just get him put in jail. But, you know. That would just negate the ability for the movie to end in such a sweet way, I suppose. Well, at one point, though, the two cops round up the six kids. So they're again taken. That's why he, of course, bails on the race, which he could win against Turk, but gets in the way of the cops and then shames them. And it all works out. And it's a little bit stupid. It's not a very good ending, actually. It's a nice touch that he's willing to not even finish the race. He DNFs so he can save the kids. But they've been captured again. Yeah, it's a pretty good twist, actually. What a twist. (laughs) That he cares enough about them, but it's not exactly that much of a surprise because you know that's where this movie's going. You yes. should know that. But the two cops picked up six kids and forcibly put them in a police car? Okay, you grab two kids apiece. That's four. And a couple of them are getting to be grown. Anthony Michael Hall is not a young little boy anymore, and Diane Lane is supposed to be 17, yeah. I think, or 16 anyway, if she's driving cars. So they corralled that many kids. <laughs> they knew the kids operated with a, like, no-man-left-behind attitude. If they grabbed one, then that was all they needed because the rest would just follow. Actually, that's a good joke, but maybe that's partly serious, though, too. It could be, we can't bail on little Harry. Well, especially not him. But if it was that they captured Breezy and Doc, who's Anthony Michael Hall, well, we can't let Breezy and Doc go away. Plus, they're taking care of us, especially her. That's You're true. right. Maybe that's actually a reasonable answer to that. It would be funny if little Harry, the smallest kid, was just like, I'm in charge <laughs> That's that. I'm out of here. <laughs> and he takes Or he bailed. Oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be funny, too. And I had the same thought when Kenny Rogers busts the kids out of the truant jail or whatever they were thrown into. Yeah. And he shows up at the police station, like you said, impersonating Big John. And incidentally, I loved the crappy sheriff costume that they put him in for mm-hmm. that. And she knows it's not a proper cop outfit, but I guess she doesn't care enough to bother disputing it. <laughs> There's like a SeaWorld Aquarium or something tag mm-hmm. that he's got covered over with handwritten John or something. Kenny Rogers busts the kids out by quote unquote impersonating the officer. And they get out of there just ahead of the real Big John showing up. But my question in that moment was real Big John shows up alone in a taxi, mm-hmm. walks into the police station like, I'm here for the six truants or whatever. So my thought is, okay, assuming the six kids were there, how were you planning on taking them back to Texas? Because you just showed up by yourself in a taxi. <laughs> you got to throw them back in a taxi and then book it across state lines. Where's your car, man? That's a lot of money. Yeah. Man, I don't know. Maybe Texas Sheriff Departments in the 80s were just swimming in cash and they just took taxis everywhere. Who knows? Well, the kids do an awful lot of things together because there's a good scene, actually, when Breezy goes off on her own. She's mad at being yelled at for not taking care of the boys right and she walks off and he follows her which means that he is also leaving the boys alone no differently than she was doing happens a lot in this movie but the next morning of course they're all just standing outside the hotel waiting for them to come back magically waiting for their cue but i did like the moment when he finally tracks her down she walked a long time and all night didn't get tired i guess but he tracks her down in the hug that was pretty sweet i think a young actress and a non-actor in kenny rogers played that scene pretty well yeah i thought so too She then also talks about how while she was walking all night, she never thought once of the boys. She was only thinking about her own troubles. And 
I've got things inside of me or something like that, implying that she's got the devil in her. I thought, oh, there's going to be some deep, dark secret that she's going to reveal about these impulses she has to do bad things. And then it just turns out that she felt like she was being selfish because she was upset as a 16 or 17 year old and walked by herself without thinking about her younger brothers. Okay, so you were a teenager. I think that could have worked equally well if she had just walked for like 15 or 20 minutes by herself and then Brewster caught her. It didn't have to be walking all night for eight hours. <laughs> yeah, that's a little absurd. Maybe they couldn't shoot whatever they needed at night and they needed it to be daytime somehow. So it's like, oh, she walked all night. What are you going to do? <laughs> we talk about movies that have a lot of meat on their bones. It's trying to message something or it's trying to talk about some sort of social commentary somehow or there's an underlying meaning to what it's talking about. This movie is none of that. This movie is here's what it is. Enjoy it if you like it for the next hour mm. and 40 minutes or so. And if you don't, well, we tried. Kind of well, if it had been black kids, it could have been a racial element, like in Hardball, which Diane Lane was in. We've covered her three times now, by the way, because she's in Hardball. That's right. Playing she's off of Keanu Hardball. Reeves, and she that. was in Secretariat, which we covered earlier this year. Yeah, that would have been actually like an interesting twist to this movie if they had incorporated a racial element. Especially set in the South. So if you've got Brewster, who's this white race car driver in the South, and it just happens to be a family of color that he runs into... That adds a layer to it that would have been interesting. Now, mm -hmm. I don't think that's what the studio was going for Probably, in the early 80s, yeah. so I get why they didn't do it. But that would be a cool little twist. Because he doesn't owe them anything at first. No. They just will not leave him alone. Yeah. And they at one point all say, please, 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 when they want to go with him. And he finally just relents. The scene, of course, when they finally starting to bond is when he's telling stories in the hotel room. And then yeah. you know for sure, if you didn't already, he's going to want to be with them, no matter how it turns out for real. And then he does find out. That's actually pretty smart. It's not obvious. If you blinked or went to the washroom, you'd never know. Well, you could just realize they bought a house. But at the end, it seems like he bought the house that they wanted. They were looking at some clipping. He found it, has a look in his face that says, oh, maybe I should buy that for the kids. You don't really know that then, but that's obviously what he's thinking yeah. at the end. And when he marries Lila, the only guests at their wedding, by the way, seem to be the kids. Yeah, which is also weird given how beloved Brewster seemed to be by mm. everybody he met. There's a lot of cross-messaging about this guy's interpersonal relationships yeah. in this movie. Again, that's just the way a movie is shot sometimes. We're being too critical, but that's fun to do in a podcast. <laughs> but he did buy the house that they wanted by the looks of it, the actual house that they wanted. And they're now yeah. going to be a family. And it's not even just him. It's Lila, too. I'm all for family movies that get wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow. And to me, if it had ended five minutes sooner and just left off the end bit, I would have been happier. If the movie had more or less ended after him doing that whole thing at the racetrack where he cuts off the cops, does the thing with the cameras, he's looking after the kids now, they're going to find their way. I think I would have been happier than the whole, oh, but he bought the house and he married Lila and all that kind of stuff. Mostly because A, the whole Lila storyline felt like it had no purpose at all, except that some studio exec was like, well, we need a romantic element. She's going to take him back after bailing on her two years earlier without a word and then there's like a weirdly intimate and long makeout scene between Kenny Rogers and Lila mm -hmm. in a kid's movie. And then the marriage at the end. And otherwise, she's just basically not in this movie. And the house thing, too. I kind of liked that little subplot of the kids seeing the clipping and really imagining that this is a place they could buy if they kept helping Kenny. But I never really got a good sense where Brewster's finances were at. And again, I don't well, he has corporate sponsorship by this point, too, with by the Ford, end does, yeah. it? Where's my notes here? Ford? It is Ford. Right, so that helps. He's got the jumpsuits. They all have the six-pack jumpsuits. They're actually called that. Yeah. He's got the car. He's got the truck. So he's making bank now, which is probably how Lila can afford to come out there and be around him because you wouldn't think with her job she could just go ahead and leave another state, whether she flew or drove. That's a lot of money for somebody in that time frame, making the money she was as a waitress. Right. But he probably paid for her to do that. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I also thought these racetracks or whatever racing circuit, especially the lower-tier circuit before he gets that invite from Ford, 
incidentally, I didn't even realize at first that we were meant to understand that what Kenny Rogers was racing on initially was a lower circuit of racing. I didn't know what it was because I knew it wasn't stock car racing. It wasn't the, I don't even know if it's the early days of NASCAR. NASCAR has been around a long time, but it wasn't the 80s NASCAR racing or anything. But it was that style of car. It wasn't the Formula One car. It wasn't Formula One, but it also wasn't a stock car. It was somewhere in between. We're never really told what it is. We're just told that he's going to different races. And it's only when he gets that invite from Ford to the Atlanta 500 where the kid's like, wow, that's the big circuit. Oh, so he was racing on a lower tier before, Mm. kind of like the Indy Lights to Indy. Okay, so Ford invites him to race at this 500-lap race in Atlanta, knowing that his pit crew is a group of six young kids. So they mustn't be concerned at all about OSHA regulations, workplace safety, any lawsuits that might occur if one of these kids get injured. I'm like, I don't think Ford would do that. (laughs) Something tells me they'd be a little bit more risk-averse than that. Yeah, and it seems like it's many races that they're doing this for him still once he's got their sponsorship. So yeah, that's another question we can raise about the film. And you know what would have been ultimately the most fitting? I say this only because we see this car in that Atlanta race. We find out that there is an Uno-sponsored car. At first I saw it, I'm like, is that Uno? Is that where we're meant to be? And then the announcer starts talking about the Uno car, and those are the two cars that get into a crash and get flamed out of the race, and then it's Kenny and Turk racing 1-2 after the front two runners get knocked out. How do you not have Kenny Rogers be sponsored by the kids' card game, given that his pit crew is a bunch of young kids? Have Mattel show up instead of Ford and say, we want to sponsor you in our Uno car at the race, Mr. Brewster, because Mm -hmm. of your kids, the six-pack. Oh, that would have been so good. Perfect tie-in. And it would have been cutesy in a movie that is relatively cutesy. Exactly. Okay, you don't have to do that if Uno or Mattel or whatever didn't sponsor a car, but you have the Uno car in your movie. (laughs) Give that car to Kenny. Come on. (laughs) What are you doing here? Like most sports movies, there's a montage of Brew trying to get in shape because, as you point out, you have to be in a certain amount of shape. And he's denied the KFC. And we are recording this a little before Halloween. It'll go up after Halloween. But we're still in the spooky season, even in November, and the mm-hmm. getting to be cold and everything season. A lot of good horror movies I've been watching lately, and I'll always watch horror movies anyway. But denying a man KFC, especially back then when it was better than it is now, that is a horrific thing to do and very unfair. I guess that is in the realm of cruel and unusual punishment. If they had done the rotating kernels in the way that they sort of done in more recent years or decades, Kenny Rogers would have been a spectacular stand-in for the colonel. Just has that look about him, you know? No, true. He had to look a little older, but he wasn't in great shape either. But that's the whole point. He's got to try to get in better shape. When they show up in Atlanta at the beginning, it was like a week before the race was going to happen. What do you want to accomplish in a week by running up and down stairs and doing sit-ups? I appreciate it. you got to have a training montage. And they name-check Rocky in this, right? When he climbs to the top of the steps, yeah. he says, oh, I like Rocky. As ridiculous as it is to think that Kenny Rogers in a week is going to get in any kind of shape if he wasn't doing anything beforehand. There's a couple pounds fine, but not 10 or 20. Yeah, sit-ups aren't going to do anything for you. It was fun that we got the shirtless sit-up scene mm-hmm. with the kid poking his belly saying, yeah, that's really good, but you're still fat. Nice that the guy who... Must be a little vain. You look at Kenny Rogers as he got older with a lot of plastic surgery. Oh, yeah. Let them say that in this movie. Yeah. He's poking fun at himself a little bit. I'm like, good on you, Kenny. I like mm-hmm. you a little bit more. I really liked you a lot. The depiction of the sport, it's fine. We've seen worse. There isn't that much racing, actually, except for no. footage of a real race they shot for the Atlanta 500, the real Atlanta 500. Or sorry, no, it's called the Atlanta 500 in this. I think it was, anyway, real footage was shot for this that is used for that race at the end. It's more exciting when Brew chases the kids at the beginning of the movie, actually, actually than in the actual yeah. races, and so much more dangerous as well. Yes. And Six Pack is certainly no Days of Thunder, or we just covered this not long ago, Rush. No. Or I, Ford versus Ferrari. I'd actually argue that Talladega Nights Another one. did a lot better job of getting you on the track with the car than this movie did. 
Ford versus Ferrari and Days of Thunder definitely gave you more raw speed and danger in the car. I guess Rush did too, to a certain extent. The thing that stood out to me amongst everything else about the racing in this movie, and you're absolutely right when you say the most exciting race was between Box Truck and Winnebago. We didn't get a lot of actual race time. We get a lot of time around cars. They're usually in the pits or towing the car. Probably half the movies at tracks or involving the cars or messing with people's cars. They're just not often being raced. But when we do see the race, it just felt so slow. And I get it. It's probably very difficult, especially on a modest budget, to get the stunt drivers and to get the shots of Kenny behind the wheel and make it look realistic and stuff like that. I didn't love the way that the cinematography of the racing actually happened. In the final shot of the race, the aerial shot of the Atlanta 500 starting, so that is the real race footage you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I wondered if the director or whomever, probably watching dailies, was thinking the same thing because the voiceover from the announcers during that aerial shot actually says, and they're off. The cars are tearing around the track, but even at the speeds, it looks like they're barely moving. I'm like, (laughs) ah, you know, it looks real slow, right? So, okay. Could be Daniel Petrie if the director wasn't the right choice to shoot an action movie or a racing movie. And in fairness, this isn't really much of a racing movie when it's all said and done. It really is more of a Kenny and the kids relationship movie, right? So I I kind of get that. Turn things around. And can you score this movie? Well, a film with a half dozen kids in it shouldn't put you in the mood. But then again, a gawky Anthony Michael Hall is yummy. Pre-vacation, pre-John Hughes movies, pre-61 asterisk, which we covered before. Of course, that was when he was grown and quite a handsome young man, not so young anymore. As for Diane Lane, can I just fantasize about a grown version of Diane Lane? Because in Hardball and in Secretariat and so many other things, wow. But she was only 17 years old. Diane Lane's great. And for a 17-year-old actor in this movie... Good performance. Good performance, yeah. I know you said she's been in stuff before this. This is probably the youngest I've ever seen her in anything. And how similar she looked then versus Hardball, versus Man of Steel, the modern Diane Lane movie, Mm -hmm. Secretariat, like you said... She has aged so well. She's finally looking older now. Yeah. The movie she made with Costner called Let Him Go, which came out a year or two ago. No one probably saw it. I did, though. They play parents again. It's like their parents in the DCEU through the 20-teens. She's not looking as young anymore, finally, but still a beautiful woman. And always a good actress, underrated as an actual actress, beyond the fact that she's a stunner. Although I'm disappointed that in light of our discussion about shirtless Kenny Rogers doing sit-ups, that you said there was no scoreability. In that scene, that scene alone, maybe... Maybe. A doughy guy who wants to eat KFC. <laughs> I don't have a beard. And by the way, Kenny Rogers, to sing him, rock band at least, the gambler, we have that on that game. He's a harder guy to sing than you might think he is. Yeah, he's got an interesting vocal range for sure. He can get high, he can get low. And I'm saying that as a compliment. We know he's a good singer, but he's harder to sing than you might think. Yeah. So a score, I'm going to say five out of ten, right down the middle. Yeah. I didn't hate it. Didn't love it. <laughs> I'm glad I got to go back. Your whole point of the podcast all those years ago was to watch movies from your youth. This is about as youth as it gets for me when I was only 10 or 12 years old. I was probably 10 years old. Yep. I agree with you. That's exactly where I was going, too. And to my earlier comment right at the beginning, how this exceeded my expectations, I thought for sure this was going to be one of those movies that were like, oh, this is unwatchable. And I think before we even started recording, I said to you, this was like the pablum of movies. Maybe a better way to describe it would be like, nice bowl of oatmeal with maybe some brown sugar on it. Not exciting, but not objectionable. And as soon as you're finished with it, you'll probably forget it. But you might have some fondness for it, depending on what your particular tastes are. It's fine. I hate oatmeal. I want that KFC, (laughs) which is also (laughs) fine. I'm going to add this to the list of foods I know Ryan doesn't like. Oatmeal, check. Pie? Oh, yes. Yeah. Not going to happen. 
All right, well, he's back to record with me. Baby. Six pack. Up next for both of us on November 24th will be our first basketball movie since June. That was the acclaimed Hustle, which, by the way, as we talk right now, and maybe in another couple weeks, it'll be even more so, that he's getting Oscar buzz, Sandler is. Is he really? Mm -hmm. For his acting performance? For the performance in Hustle. It was good. Or at least other awards, and maybe it'll turn out to be an Oscar nomination. We might have even said when we were talking about the movie that. If it happened, it wouldn't shock us. Yeah. He's damn good. The whole movie's good. Well, this will be the less acclaimed, but as I recall, it's somewhat similar to the Ben Affleck, Gavin O'Connor basketball flick that we did, I guess it was last year, The Way Back, Mm -hmm. which we liked a lot. So this will be Sam Rockwell coaching a girls high school basketball team in The Winning Season. So you can always talk to us on Twitter. We're at MovieFiend, or I am, at MovieFiend51, and Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. How about subscribing to us, or even just rate us and drop some comments online for us, tell us what you think of the podcast, send something like the guy who edited Hustle. He That's talked right. to us and corrected some things. And that was really cool. Yeah. Our 116 episodes are all available for free in the very best podcast places. So take her easy, gambler. Then again, I watched your performance in this movie. You don't really get too wound up about anything. So <laughs> you keep doing you, Kenny, even though now you're dead. Oh. Well, he died in 2020. Well, that was a bummer. You do you. <laughs> Let's go back in time to 1982 <laughs> when you were only 40. Three.